what has taken place in Jacob's story. And in many ways, what Genesis 46 is going to remind us of is that this is still Jacob's story in a lot of ways. We've taken a detour, and we even labeled over the top from Genesis 37 to 50, God meant good, and it's the life of Joseph. It has focused on Joseph in many ways, but we're still telling Jacob's family story. He is the patriarch still. He is the one that is over this particular portion or this particular period of history in God's family. And what's going to happen now is that at the end of Genesis 45, Jacob has heard word of what could be described as nothing less than a resurrection. His son is alive, his beloved one. And he is being invited to come and join him in Egypt to not only receive a resurrected son, but in many ways to receive resurrected hope that his family and line are not going to die from the famine that is in their midst. And so that's where the story starts. Jacob has just heard this unthinkable word that Joseph is alive. God has been working behind the scenes, and now this has come to a culmination point. Joseph has broken. He's revealed himself to his brothers, and we are anticipating reunion. That's where we start as we begin reading in Genesis 46. Now, one thing quickly as I start to read Genesis 46, I'm going to read through the whole thing. There are a lot of Hebrew names in this chapter. I'm going to ask for grace right up front, and I'm going to say two things. I'm going to try my best. We're going to go through it. And two, I want to remind you that as a spoken language, biblical Hebrew is more or less dead. It doesn't sound like it sounds now. So if you are in the room as an ancient Hebrew scholar, I apologize. I will butcher some things. If you are not an ancient Hebrew scholar, maybe even if you are, I just want to remind you that no one knows exactly how to, ma- how to pronounce these things anyway, so there. Okay? That's, that's my disclaimer as we start. This is Genesis 46, starting in verse 1. So Israel, remember God has taken Jacob's name and renamed him. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob sent out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, and their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jochen, Zohar, and Shal, the son of the Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, and Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Er, and Onan, and Shelah, and Perez, and Zerah. But Er, Er, and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron, and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, and Puva, and Yob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, and Elan, and Jahleel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. 
Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphian, and Haggai, and Shunai, and Esbend, and Eri, and Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, and Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Nehi, and Rosh, Muppin, Huppin, and Arg. <laughs> These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shillam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. And all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. They have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Let's take a moment and pray together. This is God's word, and we want to be attentive to it. So let's pray that God helps us. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us these moments together. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. I thank you that despite our doubting and our sinning and our unfaithfulness, and all the distraction that we bring with us into this room, we thank you that you see us, you love us, you have accepted us in Christ. We have confidence before you. Indeed, we, we call you Father. You love us with a fatherly affection. And as your family this morning, as your people, we want to be attentive to your word. I pray, God, that there would be no gap, no deficit between our confession, that these words are living and active, that they're the very word of God. There would be no deficit between our confession of this truth and our response, our right response, our passionate response to what you've shown and what you've done and who you are. God, I pray for those who need comfort this morning. We carry with us the weight, the burdens of a fallen world. We carry with us the sins of others against us, and we 
also are aware of, and many times even woefully unaware of the sin within. And so, God, I pray that you'd grant mercy and give grace and you'd bring comfort. Spirit of God, would you bring comfort to us? We need to be comforted. We are not impressive. God, for those who need to be encouraged this morning, at discouraging moments in life and in the, in the world, I pray for those who are downtrodden. God, we ask for all of us this morning that you would speak words of life. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be active to bring your fruit in us today. So we offer ourselves to you. We pray for faithfulness, attentiveness, and for grace to obey. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to break up Genesis 46 in this way. We're going to think about three things related to Jacob, and then we're going to shift to one thing concerning Joseph. They're all going to be words or concepts that start with W. So here's where we're going. We're thinking about Jacob's worship first, Jacob's worship, Jacob's wisdom, And then Jacob's wagons, those will be three things concerning Jacob. And then finally going to think about, and of course it's related to Jacob, but it's really Joseph's weeping that becomes the center of attention as we come to the end of Genesis 46. So there is worship and wisdom, wagons and weeping, and that's how we're going to try to make our way through this chapter and consider it together. Chapter 46 opens, having... A picture of a man who for the last couple of decades has, by his own admission, been slowly dying of grief. He has believed that all hope was lost. He has believed that he was as good as dead, that he had not received what he wanted to receive. In fact, in nearly every instance over the last times, two to three to four times, when we've encountered Jacob, what we've encountered is word of his death. He keeps bringing it up. And now what happens at the beginning of Genesis 46 is for the first time in a while, we see Jacob is on the move. He has received a shot of life and a bit of encouragement. And so what he does is he takes all that he has and he begins to make his way toward Egypt. He has a, an immediate kind of obedience that we're going to see he's doubled down on later, but he's beginning to move, and then as he gets down to the this most southern part of what you consider to be God's land, if you took Canaan, the promised land that he was in, Beersheba more or less marks the southern border of this, and you can see him walking and moving and bringing all that he has, new with hope, new with life, new with encouragement, but still wondering Is God in this, and could this be true? I just told my kids this last week, an old adage of wisdom for the world, if it seems too good to be true, it is. And I'm sure because Israel, because Jacob is a man like us, he's probably considering all of these possibilities, but he does something that is profound and something that we can learn from. He comes to the southern border of what can be considered God's land, and he pauses and he offers sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac, 
Jacob in a time of receiving good news, Jacob in a time of what seems to be monumental change in his life and in the life of others, he pauses and he worships God. The impulse to worship in want and in difficult circumstances as well as in moments of plenty. The idea that someone who is connected to God and knows who he is and sees himself in line with and in perspective of who God is and what he's doing in the world, what happens is is there becomes an impulse in every circumstance to worship. We get this as a direct command later. Post-Christ, we're told that we should give thanks in all circumstances, rejoice in all circumstances. And here Jacob, in his old age, in some ways experiencing sadness and loss, remember what he's doing, he's lifting his family and he's leaving the place that was promised, but he also has in his soul and in his heart the idea of good news, and he does what any faithful, mature man of faith does, he worships in this moment. Worship as an ongoing, consistent impulse is a hallmark of a person with a mature understanding of who God is and what he deserves. Jacob becomes, far before the Psalms, though he's not a song leader, though he doesn't have any instrumentation, Jacob reminds us of the importance, first and, importance first and foremost of being a worshiping person. Here he has received good news, and he stops, and he worships. I don't know what this looks like for you, but there must be evidence somewhere. A person who has received of God and has the Spirit of God living in them is someone who desires to connect with God in a consistent basis. This means that somewhere in the midst of your soul, whether it's in quietness by yourself or with others, with loud noises or in silence, in the day or in the night, there must be some circumstances and some places and some ways where you say, I am committed to one thing no matter what happens around me. Come what may, if the world falls away from under my feet, I will worship. This is what God is seeking in the world, those who will worship in spirit and in truth. He is desiring to find faith in the earth. This is the lesson of Jacob at this moment. Decades and decades of uncertainty and worry. In the midst of a crazy famine, hearing unfathomable good news. And he takes time and he pauses and he stops and he worships. Now the place I think has at least one significance. I mentioned one already, that it's on the southern tip of what can be considered God's land. Secondarily, it seems as though Beersheba had a special connection specifically to Jacob's father, Isaac. This was one of the first places that Isaac, his father, put down roots and said, this will be a place of faithfulness. That's doubled down on later. In fact, Beersheba shows up three times previous in Genesis, in chapter 21 and 28, and then in chapter 33. Chapters 21 and 28, it receives its name because this is a place where God works out a conflict with Abimelech. They make an oath together. That's what the name means, it's a place of oath. They make an oath together, and it essentially establishes God's people in a particular place. They have peace in a land, and this is a big deal if you are a people, if you feel as though God is working to create in you a kind of kingdom. If you're going to be his people, you need a place and so Beersheba was significant, not only because of its location on the southern tip of Israel, but also because it was a place, one of the first places 
where God was working on their behalf, where an oath was struck to give them peace over these wells. It's also significant, I imagine, for Jacob specifically, because in chapter 33, as he takes center stage and becomes sort of the the leader of the family, he leaves from Beersheba and goes deeper into Canaan to make a place of his own. And now as he's going back and carrying all that he has with him, he stops at this place. And he remembers his father, and he remembers the promises, and he remembers the covenant, he remembers all that's gone before him, and he worships. That's why the end of verse 1 in Genesis 46 is so pointed. He offers sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Jacob is remembering in his old age and seeing that God's hand has been with him in relationship to the promise that has been made for generations before him. And so Jacob worships. And we should love him for this. And we should learn with him in this We must first and foremost be a worshiping people. Whatever the circumstances are, bad news, good news, up, down, straight, sideways. May it be said of God's people that they worship. And I'm going to leave you as wide a context as possible to describe what that is. If you didn't bring your tambourine in your purse today, I'm not saying that that's what you must do. But I am saying that there must be evidence somewhere that is a hallmark of maturity, of understanding who you are in relationship to God that you will worship. Now, what happens out of this worship at this place is the second word that we wanted to focus on. Jacob is concerned first with worship. He offers sacrifices, but also because he is needy and he needs something from God, which is another good impulse. What he needs is wisdom And that's the second thing we're going to focus on, Jacob's wisdom, both the wisdom that he has in seeking as well as the wisdom that he receives. It tells us in verse 2, that God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. Now, in this case, God initiates, and I believe that this is significant and a wonderful mercy. And we must remember again and again and again, we have the word of God because God determined to give the word. And this is something to be grateful for. God could have turned his back and been silent for all of the rest of eternity. He owed us nothing, but we serve and are called to and are loved by a God who speaks. He knows the predicament that Jacob is in. My guess is is that in the midst of the worship and sacrifices, that Jacob likely made it known to God what he wondered or what he wanted. And so God here is gracious to him. And he gives him wisdom. It tells us in verse 2 that God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. Now, if you remember how significant, especially in Joseph's life, but Jacob's as well, dreams have been. Uh, In fact, we spent a whole podcast thinking about dreams and looking through all the places there on the Bible. And I would say that verse 2 is one of the most tricky cases because it doesn't say dreams here. The Hebrew says it's visions of the night, so we don't know exactly how God spoke to him. He could have been up restless in the night. Have you ever been worried or anxious about something or maybe even just excited like a little kid before Christmas morning. Hard to go to sleep, so we don't know if he's actually sleeping. My guess is that he was not, otherwise it would have just been called dreams. But sometime here in the evening and the night, God speaks to Israel. And he says to him, Jacob, Jacob. Jacob presents himself, a sign of humility and of worship. And then God does something. He gives him sanction, divine sanction 
for leaving the land that he had been called to and going down to Egypt. And this is significant, and I think it shows Jacob's wisdom in waiting on God here at the border of God's place, the land of Canaan. It shows his wisdom. This is in contrast, for instance, if you've been paying super close attention to Genesis, you remember as far back as the teens, you know, Genesis 12 through 20, that one of Abraham's big mistakes is that he often would just leave places seemingly without asking God's permission and many times out of fear. And so Jacob is thinking to himself, I've received good news. I know there's a famine here. It seems like we have provision there, but I remember something. I am a child of my father Isaac, who is from Abraham, and we've been given a land, and this is our place. And before I leave here, I better get permission from God. He's a man under authority. He doesn't want to just leave and go. And so God gives him divine sanction to leave so that Jacob's movements could not be interpreted as lack of faith. See, you could say, well, is God not able to drop manna from heaven? What is a famine to God? Are you not God's people? Shouldn't you just tough it out? Well, if Joseph's alive, he can come to you as easy as you could go to him. Don't take the easy route, the comfortable route. And so maybe you can see Jacob's question and the thing that would have been wrestling in his mind. You ever been faced with a, a problem or a decision or someplace to go or not to go, and you really feel as though, wow, I could argue either side of this, and I just don't know. I think that God rescues Jacob from that particular conundrum by telling him, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation, and I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. You see, Jacob has wisdom and is related to wisdom in this section in two ways. One, he's smart enough to know that he wants to wait on God and get his counsel. He's wise enough to realize that in situations in life, no matter what seems most obvious in front of you, that it is never, ever, ever a good idea to simply go on impulsively assuming things of God. And so he pauses and he worships and he waits for God's wisdom. There's a second significant aspect of this, something that will mark God's people from the, for the rest of time. And that is this, that ultimately what the gospel is, what the good news is, more than getting instructions, and Jacob does get that from God, Jacob gets what we need more than anything else. He gets the promise of God's presence. This is the greatest thing that could be offered. More than here's where you're going to go, God says to Jacob, I'm going to be with you. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. This is a gift of unimaginable value. You know what God says about the end of all time? This is going to be the greatest thing about heaven. This is going to be the culmination of all things. This will be the putting together of everything that was lost by sin. God says, I will be your God and you'll be my people. We'll be in relationship together. My presence is what you need most. And so Jacob now, with all the confidence in the world, not only because of command, but the comfort of God's presence, says, I can leave and I can go because God is with us and he's at work. You may recall in future generations, hundreds and hundreds of years later, this is one of the things that marks Moses as a leader of God's people. There's even a moment when he has a kind of an 
a conversation with God where it seems like God tests him to make sure he knows what is most important. There's a moment when Moses could leave and he could take his people and they could go and there'd be provision and they'd be fine. And Moses stops and he prays and he says to God, commanding of him, not commanding of God, but Moses was pretty bold, actually. He seems to be the most, uh, he's definitely got more, uh, he's got more courage than I would in speaking face-to-face with God, I think. And he basically says to God, if you're not going with us, we're not leaving. If your presence doesn't go with us, we're not going anywhere. How wise it is for a person of God, especially a leader of God's people, to realize that no success is true success, that no movement is real movement, that no change is worth it, no provision gives increase if God is not with you. It is better to have God's presence and to have nothing else than to have all of the riches and security and fame of the world and lack God himself. Moses says, I'm not going to go anywhere if you don't go. And he's learned well from the patriarchs. Jacob is with his caravan. But he pauses and he worships and he seeks God's wisdom. And he receives what he desires most, which is God's presence. You see, God's people without God aren't impressive at all. We have only one thing to boast in. There is only one enduring good that marks anyone who follows the God of the universe, and that is is that he has given us his presence eternally. We lose that, we lose everything. So I would say that Jacob is wise to seek God's counsel He gets wisdom because God gives him direction and says, here's what I'm doing. And then finally, there's a kind of wisdom in trusting. I love how after this exchange, there's not a lot of details. I would love the details. Tell me about the vision of the night. Does it always happen? Did you eat something special? Were you praying ahead of time? Were you surprised? Does this happen often? Did God speak audibly? Did the dust move? Did a wind come? Was he physically there? I want a million questions. None of it's there, but you know what is there. Verse 5 Right away, after the instruction of God, then Jacob sent out from Beersheba. You know what Jacob was wise enough to do? He was wise enough to seek the counsel of God, to receive wisdom of God, and he was wise enough to obey. Some things, not everything, but some things really are simple. Some things God has laid out for us. And when we see it, when we find it, to obey is the greatest the most faithful thing that we can do. And so Jacob is wise because he listens. He sets up. He gets up in the morning. He says, all right, everybody, we have what we need. Let's go. And that brings us to, which for whatever reason, I think it's because of the connotation of my childhood or all of our childhood. You know when you think of this this next W word, Jacob's wagons. I don't know why it makes me smile so much. Do you say wagon? I just realized there's another A word. I say, when I grew up, I said fragrance or something. Is it fragrance? Fragrance, fragrance. I don't know. I always get these words wrong, and I get teased about it endlessly. And I just said wagons, and the Spirit of God moved, and he told me, Lance, you'll be made fun of for saying these things. Whatever it is, the wagons, It makes me smile to think of God rescuing his people from famine and bringing Jacob finally back into the presence of his son in a wagon. And I think of like little red ones when I think of this. I know it's not the case, but I think of God as a father bringing his children 
to safety. And you might say to yourself, well, why so much time given? In fact, you might say, Lance, why did you spend time reading all those names? Now, there's a couple things to think about here. What is the significance of the wagons? First, this entire accounting, I think, serves as a kind of, not a, not a eulogy of sorts, but it's a, you know when someone dies and the announcement in the newspaper lists out the circumstances of their life and the age when they died and where they lived, and then there's always a section in it that does something significant that all of us realize is significant in the moment. It lists out their legacy or their family or their connections or the people that they're tied to. And no one, especially when they've loved someone well, no one goes through and looks at the end of this, you know, the, the section that lists out all the names and just rolls their eyes and say, oh, I can't believe there's so many names here. You look for yourself in the list. It shows the meaning of the connection that you had to the person that died. What's interesting is that the timing of this comes a little bit out of place. Jacob is not going to die until the end of the book. He technically makes it all the way through Genesis, so we don't get much fanfare about his death. And I already told you his death has actually been mentioned by himself numerous times. He's going to say it again in Genesis 46. And it seems as though that God's word determines that he is going to set out the death announcement of Jacob here in chapter 46, and it's what we get. And so one of the purposes, one of the reasons that we have an accounting of all of Jacob's family, I believe, is to give notice and to have an accounting for his life. This is why I believe it's there, why it takes so much time. This is his family. These are the, those that are going to remain, those that carry on the name, those that have the covenant and hold it with them. And so that's one of the reasons that this listing of who is all in the wagons goes down. I think there's two additional reasons of why, why this is mentioned. I mean, apart from the pragmatic, of course, the practical, they had to get there somehow. I think another reason is to show the movement of the, f of the promise of God. There is fulfillment. When God called Abram from nowhere, and he was nobody, he had no children, and then he and his wife were barren for a long time, and it seemed as though they had no hope. They're supposed to be the father of many generations, and they had no one for a long, long, long time. And now here is his grandson, a significant enough man with a big enough family that you have to send many, 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 many wagons to haul all of who he is and all that love him and all that are connected to him down to Egypt. I think about moments of family reunions, or I think I've told the story before of the time that it struck me sitting in the most raucous Cajun Christmas party room that I've maybe been in at my wife's family. We were at her paternal grandparents' house, and they were sitting over in the corner, and everyone's just chaos everywhere, and there's gumbo, and there's like all the things you'd imagine wonderfully be people eating endlessly, but also white elephant gift exchanges and people laughing and singing. And then I look around and I see her grandparents sitting over in the corner and I think back and I wonder, I wonder if they imagine this on their first date. It's just the two of them. Like they could get anywhere, however they wanted. Like I remember the times with Sarah and I, like we needed to get somewhere that she just, you could just ride on the handlebars. You just need a bike. It's just you two. 
Everything's easy. It's easy to schedule. It's easy to get somewhere. It's just you two, and that's it. And you know what happens with faithfulness over the time? I'm looking over to her, her grandparents, and I'm like, this room is packed, and you can't move. And there's almost 70 people in this room, all yelling and laughing and whatever. And I think, I wonder if they see and understand God's faithfulness to give this. And that's the picture that I get. There was a time not so far ago that God's people, namely Abraham at the time and his wife, were longing for and wondering if God would ever be faithful to give them increase. And so the picture we have here is to show the slow. Now, it is, it is slow, but that's why the Bible says that uh, God doesn't count slowness in the same way that we count slowness. According to our calculations, it's a little slow, but there is fulfillment nonetheless. Here comes Jacob, son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham, 70 strong, full of wagons, rolling into Egypt. And I think what we're supposed to see is we're supposed to, we're supposed to see God being faithful to the covenant. And then finally, I said there was going to be two additional reasons. There's one, it serves as a a reminder or a listing out of the life of Jacob and his ancestors. Two, it shows the fulfillment of Scripture. And then finally, I think it's going to serve as a contrast because what we know for sure, those of us who have read ahead in the story, what we know for sure is that they will not remain 70 people in Egypt. If we fast forward 700, 400 years, if we fast forward 400 years, we know that these 70 are going to turn into millions And so there's going to be a contrast in Scripture as they tell the story of God's people. This moment in Genesis 46 is the last time that God speaks to the patriarchs. He tells Jacob, it's okay, I will bring you out, go into Egypt. The story is going to continue later with millions of them being freed from slavery in the Exodus. And this is a drastic contrast. 70 people, full wagons, but wagons nonetheless, having to march out as millions later on. And that's going to be in our minds as we read the story of God's redemption in the world. Genesis 46 leads to, I think, what we've all been waiting for, what we all wanted, what we all long to see, which is the reunion of Jacob with his son. And that leads us to the description of Joseph's weeping. We see the anticipation of Jacob. He sends Judah ahead of him to Joseph. By the time they reach Goshen, this rural area outside of what would have been, you know, the more populated sections of it, by the time they reach this area, Jacob is prepared and Joseph is prepared and they finally meet and if there needs to be a telling of this story we need to find the finest conductor the finest orchestra and get the best score like what's that guy's name Williams or something we need the best music for these two coming toward one another right we need the we need the most fully emotional, the most fully joyful, the most fully exuberant after a long, long wait. 
And what Jacob finally receives here at the end is the unabashed love, affection of his most beloved son. Joseph presents himself. Joseph, the one who rules all of Egypt. Joseph, the one who orchestrated this, more or less. Joseph, the one who at his command can save entire families. That Joseph remembers his daddy, in a sense. Remembers his father. He presents himself to him. He falls on his neck. He weeps. Now Israel goes back to the point of his death. He's not left this, but it's a very different tune. At least three times previous, Israel has said, I'm going to die in sadness and in grief. And this time, he says, after seeing his son, let me die. And the connotation here is in joy and in peace because I've seen your face and I know that you are still alive. Jacob understands that his time is coming to an end, but he receives the joy of the reunion with his son. Now there's going to be more to the story, of course. Jacob has some things to do still. He is going to have to settle his family, and he's going to have to still navigate the mechanics of the famine living in Egypt. He's going to have to consider how his children will get along and where the future authority is going to go. But for now, he is seeing that God has been faithful to the point of resurrecting more or less not only his son, but his hope and his reason for living. And we are seeing that God's faithfulness is bringing to a close the life of Jacob. And as we step back and remember where this started in Genesis 37 with the conflict in the family and Joseph being sold off into slavery and us not understanding the evil that has befallen him, we are now at a particular point where we can in many ways breathe out. This is a point to take stock. This is a point to look back and to realize that God's faithfulness, even in moments that we don't understand, has brought them to a place of provision of love and of reunion. I think it's a good reminder for us in the midst of life that is full of disappointments and busyness and going here and going there, in movements of God that we don't fully understand, to remember that there are many, many moments that we should pause and take stock. I believe that there are moments when God is desirous of, and he is certainly always worthy of worship when maybe we worry instead. I believe there are many instances in life where we would do well to seek God's wisdom rather than rushing on ahead with what seems necessary or pragmatic. I believe that there are many times in life where we are perhaps too content without the presence of God, maybe not expectant enough that he desires to be with us and has promised his presence. I long for us to be the kind of place that looks back and sees our wagons full rather than wondering about what comes next or wishing all of the things that are not in it. There are beautiful evidences of God's grace and his faithfulness to us in our midst. There's times to take stock. And ultimately, of course, there are times for us to remember and to rehearse that what God is doing Slowly, according to our accounting, not according to his.
but what God is doing is he is bringing about a family reunion that one day we will be perfectly and utterly safe because we will be reunited with our Father. He will make all of the arrangements. We will have a moment. We'll be ushered into his presence. And for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, we will be broken in a good way. We will rejoice eternally because relationship has been restored. We will receive the benefits of what is more or less a resurrection. And it's these pictures that we find in Genesis, these pictures that we see in Scripture that lead us to hope and to realize that we have been given a good deposit, a good history, a good family line, good evidence that God is for us and he will always be faithful.